Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Poisoner's Cabinet, Expert Witness! <laughs> Bonus episode for you lovely people. Yes, it's another wonderful episode of the Poisoner's Cabinet where we talk to an expert from the field of poisoning and we enjoy some curious cocktails inspired by death, murder and all wonderful things out there. All the jolly things in the world. I'm Sinead. And I'm Nick. We are recording this special episode as a pre-warning. We've had many technical issues with this, mm -hmm. so we're doing our best with the audio. Bear with us. But today we are very, very, very pleased to have a very special expert witness on the show. Uh, some, someone who has insane amounts of credentials. <laughs> yes. Really. So just, much more those than any of us. They are a pathology professional. So they deal with dead people. Not only carried out actual autopsies, they are a curator of the Pathology Museum up in London, Bart's Pathology Museum. Uh, they've had their own podcast. They're an author. Um, and they're the brains behind the brand new goth gardening and lifestyle brand, Morticulture. We are joined this evening by Carla Valentine. How are you, Carla? Hello. I'm fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. We are delighted to have you on the show. Um, yeah, we, as we said, just ran through the roll call that is your life which I think all of our listeners are listening to and going, okay, how do I become her? Yet, yeah, is there anything we've missed? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, probably, but I, I, I've, I've forgotten them myself, to be honest, so they can't be that important. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I try to have my fingers in apparently a lot of different pies or a lot of different corpses, whichever way you want to look at it. And uh, I've sort of forgotten now <laughs> the laundry list of things I've started and, you know, tried to keep going and all the plates I've started to spin. But my main role, I mean, I'm qualified as a, a pathology professional and the technical term for that is an anatomical pathology technologist but Ooh. nobody likes to say that because it takes a long time it is quite so, a mouthful it really is yeah so we say apt and that's what i did for 10 years and then kind of sidestepped into the world of historical human remains so less fresh but just as smelly in a slightly different way <laughs> It's the poisonous cabinet. We can't possibly talk to an expert witness without having a cocktail on the go, can we, it's Nick? It's not done. In honour of Carla and her deathly ways, we decided to mix up something with a, a sort of macabre theme this evening. What have you come up with, Nick? Well, we have a cocktail called Death by Dusk. Death by Dusk? Which Ooh. sounded quite intriguing. Like a reverse vampire. Potentially, yes. <laughs> but the list of ingredients, we could well be dead by the end, by the end of this. Okay, what's in it? 
Well, we've got absinthe for which is always a good start oh, good. for a cocktail, and then violet. Ooh, absinthe and violet topped up with champagne. <gasps> decadence. Yes, decadence, decadence of the highest order. Um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. So often <laughs> when we have absinthe, it has it has the effect on us. We don't get completely drunk, but we do go kind of hyper and crazy on it. So we have it here. Oh, you, yes, you've put something. I mean, do you have a beverage, Miss Carla? I, I do actually, and I listened to your Dr. Crippen episode today, and Yay! you were talking about Campari, and so I thought, well, I don't have the ingredients to make the cocktails that you made, but I made an apple spritz. Nice. Nice. And also, you can put a load of ice in it, and I think we need it on a day like today. Well, very refreshing and very sort of European. I feel quite cosmopolitan with now. Fantastic. It's nice well, we've got, we got a sparkling wine. Welcome to wine, the Poisoner's Cabinet. <laughs> sparkling wine theme going on. Okay. All right. So we're gonna try this cocktail for the first time. That's not very nice. I don't like that. Do you not? No. I thought you'd like that. That. It's 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 hmm. Absinthe. It's interesting. It's interesting. Well, yeah, there's, it's there's got, more it's for just, you then. Well, it's just champagne and absinthe. That's just a bit weird. It's like death in the afternoon, isn't it, man? Yes. Well, definitely. After, we was considering doing that, but that has considerably more absinthe. <laughs> Um. And that way madness lies when trying to do an interview. Like professionals, with a professional like yourself, you don't want us just taking a shot and a half of absinthe each. Just going, why are there dead people? Why is this the most dead? <laughs> I mean, we could do that. It might turn into that after this. Oh, okay. So a death by dust. You are not... I'm surprised you're not a fan. Mm. Normally you love this kind of shit. I do. Normally I do. <laughs> Anything weird like that, I love it. It's uh. okay. You know what? I think it's because... It is a hot day, and, and Carla's just hit the nail on the head. You know, an Aperol spritz with some ice. That'd go down lovely right now. I might go and make a very large gin and tonic in a minute. You could do. Or we could just make some... Or just use the Russian champagne to mix up some... I don't know. Something else. Some, something else. Aperol spritz. Let's all have Aperol spritz. <laughs> That'll be nice. Or martinis. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Well, we're, we're drinking. Anyway, that's the most important thing. Quite right. So I suppose that the first question is, before we get on to the, to the many other arms of your profession, is... How did you become a pathologist? Everyone's seen... Oh, I suppose the walking... Not the walking... The waking dead. The walking dead. That would be awful. Please don't... No! Terrible for my career. (laughs) (laughs) There's nobody here. (laughs) Yeah, so how do you become a pathologist? Well... There's, there's two different ways, really. And what I do is I'm, I'm a pathology technician, so I'm not a qualified medical doctor, which is really just because I couldn't bear the idea of working on live patients from the start. It was, it was never my interest. So I became a pathology technician, which is it's a role that you apply for as a trainee and you actually do all of that training on the job. So that's the only way that you can do it. Whereas if somebody wants to become a pathologist, a bit like um, in Silent Witness, they'll have to be a medical doctor first. And that, that way they do sort of years and years with live patients and then they move on to the dead, which, as I say, it's just a step that I, I really wasn't interested in. <laughs> I love that. Just straight to the dead. I'm intrigued as a pathology professional. What I mean, what does your day entail? Your your day day to day activities, um. entrails. <laughs> you mean particularly as well since I've been working from home because that's <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, hopefully that's less. <laughs> well, currently, uh, so for the last sort of um, eight nine years, I've been the curator of the pathology museum at, at Potts uh, Hospital, Potts Queen Mary University, and so what I do there is I repair human remains which have already been 
chopped up by somebody, placed in sort of glass pots and plastic pots for medical students to learn all about disease and anatomy. So that, that's been my job for a long time. Um, and in, in conjunction with that, I like to do a lot of public engagement events to just get people to see this collection and use it in different ways. But um, working from home, as, as a lot of us have been during the sort of the lockdown, uh, I didn't get onto the, the the tube with, you know, a sort of big bag of, of glass pots and, and bring them <laughs> home. I've, I've been very boringly just updating uh, an online calendar so that we've a way that people can see the specimens from you know far away which is something that's going to be important going forward so it's, mm -hmm. it's good that, that i you know very privileged and lucky that i've been able to do that from home I'm, I'm curious about the background to you that sounds quite weird but but go with me on it so how did you get interested in pathology nick and i certainly and a lot of our followers are quite macabre at heart. What, what sparked this interest in pathology and working with the dead? Well, you know, it was this absolutely diabolical woman known as the Duchess of Death, Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody thinks of her as being very twee, you know, and uh, yeah. lots of knitting going on and lots of slow gin. But uh, I was very interested in biology when I was a really young child. You know, I, I talk about the fact that I did have a microscope for my eighth birthday. I did use worms to look under the microscope with with uh, you know a powerful lens so, so my, my interest in biology was very it was a big interest and then once I started to read Agatha Christie which I did at about eight or nine years of age I started to see that link between the two you know you've got the which we call it forensic pathology nowadays of course but it's the body and biology and crime solving and how they, they both relate. So she was really responsible for, for getting me on the career path that I, I got on, really, which is, you know, as you say, people go, what on earth? How did you end up doing that? I mean, my therapist has a lot of questions. <laughs> when I tell her it's Agatha Christie's fault, she's like, oh, that's not so bad. So, so it's her fault, yeah. Agatha Christie has uh, she's a lot, a to, lot answer to answer for. for. <laughs> yeah, the, the, that's the second person we've had on Expert Witness, maybe the third. Everyone mentioned Agatha, Agatha, we read Agatha, and she inspired us. Oh, she gave us ideas. <laughs> and her really microscopic knowledge of biology and poisons and how they work is, it's not just fiction, it's almost faultless. She, she really did her research, didn't she? Absolutely. And I, I think one of the, the favourite reviews that she ever had about her first book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, was from the Pharmaceutical Journal. Who, you know, And you don't see a lot of whodunit writers getting reviewed by medical journals, but, <laughs> but she was. And, and they said, this is, this is faultless. This has been written by somebody who really knows her stuff effectively. But I think what's, what people forget is actually her knowledge of forensics more broadly is actually quite spot on as well. And I was quite surprised when I started to to look at Agatha Christie in that way, you know, through the, through the lens of forensic science. Quite surprised that maybe, maybe in the beginning the knowledge wasn't quite there, but it developed as forensic science developed. So she was clearly reading, you know, about the pathologists like Bernard Spilsbury. And she was reading these landmark cases, you know, Crippen, as we've talked about, and, and many, many others. And there's a, there's a clear trajectory there of her, you know, slight lack of knowledge at the very, very beginning. Coming so broad and really, really quite accurate. Talking, talking about Agatha Christie um, and her use of poisons throughout her, her books, have you had any sort of first-hand experience with your job of death by poisons? I'm sure yeah, you have. I have. I didn't do the poisoning. I was... <laughs> Let's just clarify that, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so throughout my years working in mortuaries, I certainly did come across 
many poisoning cases. And of course, in, in, in real life and in the modern world, they're not as twee and as sort of interesting and as um, exciting as the ones that we might read about in, in Agatha Christie and her contemporaries. People do poison themselves a lot for suicide purposes. Um, they can be quite gruesome. They really, you know, using more corrosive substances, such as weed killer. But there was a spate of poisonings that involved cyanide uh, about 10 years ago, but it was cyanide in the form of gas. And we had to do quite a few of these these suicidal hydro, hydrogen cyanide poisonings. Um, and we had to wear the full sort of Teletubby suit because cyanide gas is incredibly dangerous. Just like many things in life, these things have trends. And it seemed to be that if people wanted to commit suicide with another person or they wanted to murder a lot of people at once, one of the ways to do it was to create um, hydrogen cyanide gas because you could find the recipe on the internet. So that was quite, uh, I mean, it's quite a scary time because you think of poisonings and you you don't think of them as being, you know, sort of dangerous to you. You sort of think the danger's been, been and gone there. But with those cases, we did have to be quite catered up in, you know, hazmat suits and be very careful. But then on, on the other side of the, the coin, now that I work with vintage human remains in a pathology museum, I get to see specimens of all of the classics. So we have, you know, the inside of the stomach lining of somebody who's swallowed, uh, you know, Lysol or somebody who's wow. been poisoned by arsenic or somebody who's been poisoned by cyanide, lots of barbiturates, that sort of thing. So I've had a nice historical sort of career in, you know, where poison started and then where they ended up really in the modern world. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, not fantastic, but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> interesting is the interesting. right word. <laughs> we do talk about on the show of the, the old-fashioned ones, the famous Victorian or Georgian sort of poisonings, those classic, you know, a little bit of arsenic in the dumplings. So many of those cases in the early stages absolutely hinged on the autopsy. But the autopsy was the thing that, that actually turned the cases in, in, in many of those instances where the people were dead. There was nothing they could do about that. They were like, oh, they're poisoned. No one could cure them. But it wasn't until you cut them open, really. And it must be incredible to have that sort of minutiae knowledge of how arsenic sort of affects the body. And you've talked about some of the samples that you've seen from that time. Definitely. I mean, with, with the autopsies, when you, when you think back to the fact that there was a time when autopsies were frowned upon, you know, and they were considered diabolical things and they were only really given to prisoners, you know, who'd been hanged. They, they have become so important in finding out causes of death and certainly with, with particular poisons. Who knows how many people were killed by poisons years and years before? Absolutely. Yeah. So it was so easy to get away with it. And, and we, we know that there was a time when it was easy to get hold of strychnine in tonics or, you know, arsenic to kill. I think even cyanide was there for the wasps, mm. uh, to kill wasps things like that so it must have been so easy for people to get away with it and that's the interesting thing about the human body and what I really loved about forensic pathology was being able to see the sort of the marks that are left on on the body kind of like a canvas you know that somebody's painted yeah. that bit of brush stroke there doesn't doesn't go that's not normally there and this you know shouldn't be here and what does that mean what is what is it trying to say and you can tell you know certain 
poisons and how long they've been in the body from the way they're deposited in the bones, the way they're deposited in the fingernails, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, nowadays, I think the reason we don't get what we think of as the quite cozy vintage poisoning, is of course, it's all done toxicologically, you know, with very, very small samples now. And we do tox screens pretty much routinely for most autopsies. So mm. there was a time when people would just go, we don't know how he died. We don't know what to do about that. You know, we don't have gas chromatography mass spectrometry that hasn't been invented yet. So there's nothing we can do now. But for most deaths, particularly if, if somebody's quite young and there doesn't seem to be um, a very visible cause, then the first thing that we would do is a tox screen. So you will get caught nowadays. That is the issue, you know, um, because... <laughs> Until the, the sort of the mythical and traceable poison that people sometimes write about in, in books still, and still once, if one's discovered that, I'm sure people might start to get away with it. Ian Young, in a way, nearly did with using thallium. But the arsenic, you know, and, and then the cyanide, they started to work out the effects on the body quite, quite early on, which is a good thing, isn't it, really? <laughs> it definitely is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did an episode a few months back about James Marsh and his Marsh test for um, identifying arsenic and have we worked upon his previous the Bodle case wasn't it there was the Bodle case which yes. was kind of a failure in a way but this is this is what happens a lot of the time isn't it people fail at fail at something and they'll well, they'll fail again and fail again but that's how they become successful at, at being able to detect them so whenever I'm asked about you know how would you poison somebody then if you could commit the perfect murder would you use poison <laughs> I think oh, I wouldn't wouldn't use poison mate oh no no <laughs> they will find it far too easy to find these days yeah. i was gonna ask um is there something that sets your alarm bells off in the past if, if you're working again on a corpse working on a corpse it's always a lovely expression what would set an alarm bell ringing for you if you as in thinking i think there's a case of poisoning here there's something not quite right what would be the signs for you mm, i think a classic one would be uh, carbon monoxide poisoning because it's causes the body to have quite a cherry red flush so although the human body as it decomposes it does go through various different stages and one of those things is called hypostasis or liver mortis and it's just where the blood settles it's usually a slightly bluish color whereas when carbon monoxide has entered the body it can be quite a bright cherry red so that's something that visually you'll sort of look at it and, and, and you'll go oh you know we need to test for that um, and it's not as routinely tested and of course you could murder someone that way if you put something in their house that gave that admitted carbon monoxide so that's one to look for and then of course there's the smell of almonds um, which you still get with cyanide gas but only some of the population can smell that. And unfortunately, the problem with cyanide gas is that if you're smelling almonds, then you're being poisoned. So you think you need to get right out of the room and go, I can smell almonds. And if no one's eating cherry bake well, then we all need to run. <laughs> this is terrible. I eat almonds all the time. It's my favorite thing. If I smell almonds, I'm like, great, there's cake nearby. <laughs> Just don't Darling. eat 14 tons and you'll be fine. <laughs> People always say, well, cyanide smells like almonds, but it's the other way around. It's the almonds that smell like cyanide. Cyanide smell like almonds. So that is a good, that's a good one, but a dangerous one. But of course, when you first enter an autopsy, you don't always know what the circumstances have been. Not everybody, you know, will, will 
give the clues as to how they passed away. And I did particularly, you know, I, I worked on a few cases in which the people had actually been quite considerate and they'd left a note on the door of their house to say, we have, we have done this, we've, we've committed suicide in this way, please don't enter without safety equipment. Which is just, you know, it's one of those questions that I'll be asked, you know, do you enjoy the job? Of course, you know, I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it, but it has its highs and it has its lows and it has its strange, poignant moments like that. And as I said, that, that sort of thing is a world away from, you know, Agatha Christie's cyanide spiked cigarette or pink gin with a bit of arsenic in it. You know, it's a very different world. Absolutely. Wow. Have you worked on a murder case that involved poison? I could tell you, but I might have to kill you. <laughs> Not one of yours, Carla. <laughs> well, I'm not really able to say. If I was to say I've worked on a particular type of poison case, you'd be able to go back and scour the newspapers and go, that's the one, that's the one she was talking about. And wow. uh, I'm not really allowed to talk about ones that are, you know, been quite high profile. No, so, haven't actually. No, I haven't. I just said that I've got found in No, 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 I couldn't. I completely respect that. Professional. There's a bit of me like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> you understand as well. I think this is the interesting thing about how Having, you know the podcast that you guys have and the interest that we have in in, in the poisons and the, the things that I write about in my books because when you're looking at something from you know the 1950s the 1850s 1750s it's so much easier to talk about the the, the facts of those murders because they're, they're far removed from us Absolutely. but when you sort of go back you know 10 10 20 years and you've got living relatives and it can be a little bit more difficult really which is why I really do enjoy working at the pathology museum because you know the specimens date from i think 1750 is the earliest one that we have so then it gives me that freedom to talk about you know the botomies and syphilis and you know all those wonderful things that i like to bring up at dinner and which is why no one gets around <laughs> the, t- the two are not mutually exclusive <laughs> so yeah so that is that is the one issue i suppose with with working on the modern thing no, no that's absolutely understandable you mentioned earlier because our recent episode was on dr crippen and i believe you are something of an expert or if you you have seen the samples that you have in the the museum there yeah well we, we're very lucky it's at the museum so we we have um a specimen um that's been mounted by bernard spilsbury who was the pathologist who kind of made his name on the on the cripping case mm. and we also have over at one of our other sites we have all of the histological slides that he took from wow. the case and in particular the scar <gasps> the scar which is you know the disputed yes. scar so my my forthcoming book is as i say it's about the forensics of agatha christie and bernard spilsbury is one of those characters who i mean we don't have people like him now because we have big brother and love island and all those people are the celebrities du jour but back in the day you know it was bernard spilsbury he he was you know, turn up quite charismatic in court and he would have all these incredible scientific opinions, you know, that made him seem like he was almost psychic, you know, so clever. He was such a big celebrity of the day. So I can't really avoid writing about him in in the Agatha book. Thankfully, I've got access to those specimens and I've, you know, really been quite perplexed by the Cripping case. Because one of the things, you know, that we've, we've talked about before is how, why is he so sort of well-known and thought of as this particularly bad villain when many people have murdered lots and lots of people and loads, you know, not just done away with their wife. What is that about? You know, it's quite an interesting case that involves a lot of different 
aspects, I think. Um, and I do wonder, actually, if he might be getting confused with Dr. Neil Cream. I think some yes. people confuse Griffin and Cream. I agree. The, the the Dr. Cream thing, people kind of maybe are getting confused because he's so much more evil. So, Carla, do you have a theory on Dr. Crippen was was he was he guilty what did he do what do you think about Dr. Crippen's case well I have thoughts about this a lot I have to say and because I've seen the slides that I've seen in the museum because I've been to the Black Museum at Scotland Yard you know the Museum of Crime Mm. I've seen some of the bits and pieces that they actually have from the Crippen case there that they don't really talk about too much online and I've got quite a radical theory I think but it's probably a bit too much to go into at the moment so you know what Carla you know what I'm thinking Nick I'm thinking Patreon episode I think that's a fantastic idea Patreon episode let's because (laughs) fountain of knowledge here let's dedicate a Patreon episode let's do a special let's do a Crippen special on Patreon and let's hear your views on that that would be amazing but yes radical oh oh, I'm excited I'm excited I want to know what the happened in that cellar i need to know it consumes me i was doing research and i was in a hotel and i was uh, doing my Agatha christie trip and i was writing about this and i just messaged my my husband because i'd had a bottle of wine and i just messaged him well who the fuck was that body in the cellar then and he was like <laughs> what the hell are you talking about I was like, oh, i'm sorry to i don't give you the prior information because <laughs> i'm so to bed Carla. you've been working on that book far too long i had too much tea now <laughs> He's like, what hotel are you staying in? <laughs> what have they found in the cellar? <laughs> How many stars does it get on TripAdvisor? So, so yeah, so I'd love to talk about it. Oh, I look forward to that. He's been so sort of demonised. I think it's time that we start to maybe see if we can set things right yeah. a bit. Nice, yeah. I like that. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. So a very important thing to point out as well, Carla, you are a fellow podcaster. Mm-hmm. So anyone who has not discovered it yet, uh, I urge listeners to go and listen to Morton on BBC Sounds. It is an incredible series and I listened to it and I generally was hooked. I've, I've, there's little phrases in it that stay in my head. I'm not even kidding. Um, oh, wonderful. Which is, they are inspired by real cases, aren't they? With some drama, but they've been changed to protect the identities of the cases involved. And it's you leading people through what is a pathological, pathological, uh, pathology? Or path- is that right? Pathological investigation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, so the whole forensics, really, it's, it's the whole gamut of forensics, which I think is why it's good, because with me, I, in a way, represent the body, because that's what I work on. But of course, in a case, and as, as you know, many of you, I thought of Al McPherson then. I, I was thinking the same thing, like, you are the body, like, you are the body, and we are the vessel. <laughs> oh, not, not after lockdown, I'm not, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> So effectively, I'm kind of like the starting point. So you can sort of imagine a crime scene and you've got a chalk outline there. There's me. And then you have the little yellow signs, don't you? Number one, number two, number three, number four. And one might point out a knife and one might point out a blood spatter and one a fingerprint. And that's because, of course, all of these people are intricate parts of this investigation. So I get to go and speak to those different investors about what they did to work on the case. So that it's real, but it isn't real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listening to the show, there were a couple of things I took away from it. Um, one little factoid. Again, films have lied to me all my life. 
the brain does not keep its shape outside of the head. You describe this scene of of taking a brain out of the skull, but that you just very casually say, and again, that the brain just it doesn't keep that brain shape. It's just a sort of a gelatinous mass. <laughs> and I didn't know that. And I, now I think about it all the time, Gartha. I did not know that, and I'm terrified by that. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? All our thoughts and our hopes and dreams come from what is it effectively a blancmange. <laughs> <laughs> if you think of a jelly in a jelly mould, and of course you mm. pop it on the plate and it wibble bubbles, but it keeps its shape, right? But the minute you slice it, it's it just completely it. slime. And that is exactly what happens with us. For a long, long time, people did think the heart was the seat of all our thoughts, didn't they, really? And our, you yeah. know, brain was barely useless maybe it's because they saw this gelatinous mass and thought oh god there's no way that's doing anything um another great fact from autumn as well as uh, there was a great episode where you talked to i didn't even know there's a specialist who looks at blood splatters and the the, the imaging as well that was done to precisely pinpoint where the splatters went and what that meant i mean this, this, this is a very composite way of saying it uh, but honestly guys it's fascinating i learned so much from your podcast and it's it's incredible and again you're on bbc sounds how do we get on there we will be guests on one of the shows we should not be guests on morton i think we should underline that hugely that we will not <laughs> i don't know you people <laughs> <laughs> we'll be there going oh isn't it funny they died of poisoning haha um no don't do that but uh congratulations for having it though Thank you. No, no, I, I do have to pick up on a point there as well, because my, my friend, who's a, a blood spatter analyst, uh, will kill me if I don't point this out, but there's a, there's a bit of a, a bug there with, with blood spatter analysts, that it's spatter, not splatter. Yes. It's, oh, yes, I did hear right. that. Splatter. But, and the only reason not splatter, so they always have this kind of hashtag Noel, you know, that kind of thing, spatter, not splatter. Um, and it's just because it's quite a, a technical term within blood analysis but the reason I point it out is actually because in one of Agatha Christie's books I believe it's towards zero she uses the, the term spatter and I was very impressed at the time and I remember calling my friend and saying you'll you'll like this <laughs> I was watching a true crime documentary on Netflix and, and they were saying splatter this splatter that but Agatha back in 1944 she she was on it she knew it right. so if we can teach people about all these little interesting parts of forensic science it's unhappy but certainly if we do a season two which i'd love to do then i would definitely weave a poisoning in there yes Fantastic. yes we will help <laughs> we'll send you some cocktail recipes <laughs> just just discuss the case with a lovely nick inspired cocktail <laughs> and all will be well i'm sure so we know you've launched your multiculture new uh, brand so tell us a bit about that. So where do you get that name from? That's fantastic. Well, I'm ridiculous when it comes to puns. I just cannot help myself. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, again, I have to say, Agatha Christie, she is dangerous because she's to blame for this also. Uh, because I went to, to see the poison garden which had been planted at Tor Abbey in Torquay, which was in her honour. And, uh, you know, lovely little place. And I, I, I was thinking about how I've always been really terrible at, at growing plants actually I've, I've i've always considered myself to have a black film or black fingers and, and my family joke about it they say well you're a mortician i mean everything we touch just dies or is already dead it's just the way it is <laughs> <laughs> so i'd always thought i had no chance but i'd recently got into carnivorous plants like venus flytrap and so i'm looking at this poison garden and i'm thinking oh you know look how beautiful these things are they're so deadly but they're beautiful like like sensitive you know and um, gorgeous blue monks had flowers and these lovely berries of, of deadly nightshade and it just kind of went on from there really in my brain i was thinking 
death and flowers have got loads in common. You know, you put flowers at funerals. Some flowers mean death, like lilies mean death. What would what would you do if you combined death and, and horticulture? And I just went, morticulture. And yeah, once I thought of that, I just couldn't stop. You know, when it's just a ridiculous idea and you just, just can't stop thinking about it. So so obviously lockdown happened. And, and I said to, to my husband, you know, why are these green beans? Why not these purple black beans that you can get? Why can't we have these funky dark carrots? You know, everything should be goth. Um, and just started to look for seeds that I could get hold of just to share that with people you know I thought there's got to be like-minded people I thought right it can't just be me <laughs> how there isn't goth gardening already people are probably doing it and they're going to embrace this obviously we will be the conduits to those people it's amazing goth gardening I love it because see, you say goth gardening all I've got is Morticia Adams cutting the heads of the ro- roses this is Again, this is another link, isn't it? Of course, and you see her cutting the heads off the roses and she's got Cleopatra, which is her big uh, man-eating African strangler, it's called, and she feeds it burger meat um, and all that. And of course, Little Shop of Horrors has got to be yes. one of my absolute favourite films in the world. I always say, you know, that guy looks like plant food. <laughs> <laughs> so they start to tell me, you know, oh, trespassers will be composted. And I was like, there's something in this. I'm a mortician, but I know about decomposition how to get rid of bodies with certain flowers that will grow you know quicker over a body than others will um and that sort of thing and so (laughs) you've mentioned before there is there is something inherent in in life coming from death from decomposition isn't there in the garden definitely i mean the the body the human body as i view it as a mortician and an apt is an ecosystem unto itself the 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 array of colors smells and creatures that you will see on a on a very decomposition body um they they would put david attenborough you know to work for 10 years to describe all of this that's that is the way thermodynamics works that's the way we get our energy from the sun and then it feeds the plants and they feed us etc etc so there's definitely something in that and 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 edward monk famously said from my rotting body flowers shall grow and i am in them and that is eternity that's the description of reincarnation to be honest it's probably the way that most of us will effectively be reincarnated the flowers you know they they are toxic and i have to make sure that people are aware of how toxic they are and have a lot of disclaimers but they're still beautiful and a lot of them are endangered and you will find them naturally in cottage gardens when things haven't been asphalted over so it's nice to to bring them back i think and bring them in into the cities and attract bats and attract pollinators as well it's all good for the environment so with multiculture people can contact you you have your own handles for multiculture on social media uh, so on instagram and on facebook and they can get in touch with you via your website yes they can buy these fabulous plants and all the other paraphernalia around it and it is gorgeous gorgeous stuff guys you, you guys are gonna love it it's just it's I'm just like yum, 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 considering yum, yum, yum. what i can get in my courtyard nick has ten nick courtyard but he can dress it in death Oh, Carla, it has been such a genuinely a delight. I could do this for hours, actually. Let's let's hang out. Let's all be best friends <laughs> forever and ever and ever until you kill us. Um, <laughs> but we can't leave without asking you two very important questions. The first and most important question: What is your favourite cocktail? Well, it for me is probably a martini. And I'm I'm certainly with you on the idea that things shouldn't be called martinis if they're not actually martinis. (laughs) I I actually separate certain cocktails from glamour drinks and they're a bit 
sweet and they look nice and and I'm I'm really more of a kind of the old Manhattan cocktails you know the Negroli's but for me a martini because I love olives and, and a dirty martini I tend to say to, to, to my husband or to the bartender filthy oh I want it filthy and that means, <laughs> I've just realized how that's going to sound to a bartender <laughs> He's used to people rocking up, going, oh, we have sex on the beach. No, filthy martini. The bartender's going to look at you and go, damn straight, woman. Quite right. <laughs> so, so that's my favourite. And I used to actually make, um, because I used to teach certain classes, and we'd make black martinis, and we'd put little skull uh, picks in them. We'd call them martinis, of course. Oh, my God. It's like a thickness. Oh, my God, I love it. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> so, so for me, that is definitely the way I would want to want to die. Martini over there. Fantastic. <laughs> And the second most important question, obviously, is what is your favourite poison? Now, I have to really think about this because there's so many. And again, I probably I don't know what that's going to sound like to my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to stick with an oldie and a goodie and go with Deadly Nightshade, I think. Ooh. Belladonna, a proper Belladonna. Because I love the juxtaposition of it because it is so highly toxic, but it's very beautiful. Lovely purple flowers, glistening berries, you know, really trying to tempt you in. The fact that it used to be used to make uh, to make women seem attractive, dropping it in their eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's just absolutely, yeah, deadly. It's, it's a huge paradox. And I, I like that sempatol aspect of it. Fantastic. Great poison and a great cocktail. Oh, let's mix up some of those. Carla, it's been an absolute delight speaking to you. You have the best life. And Thank you so much. I don't often get that, as I say, at dinner parties. Usually it's Tony by air again. You're going to the wrong dinner parties. Truly are, absolutely. (laughs) So Carla, how do people find out about your stuff? Where do they go to if they want to know more about everything that you do? They can hit me at my website, which is carlavalentine.co.uk and I'm on Instagram, Twitter and I'm probably on the most wanted list of these uh, Scotland Yard as well so you'll probably find me there. <laughs> We're all on a watch list, trust me. The amount of googling that gets done for poisoning and methods of poisoning. Yeah, we're on a list somewhere. Carla, delight to speak to you guys. Check out Carla's work. Go to her website. Go to her social media handles. Look at Multiculture and listen Absolutely. to Mortem on BBC Sounds. Just follow her stuff because it's fantastic. Any follow-up questions that you've got for Carla, do send to us. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's honestly been a joy to come on and talk to you both. It's been fantastic. Thanks as ever for your support as well for the podcast. Chaps, we hope you've enjoyed our latest expert witness and uh, yeah, we should have some more content hopefully coming from Patreon. But as ever, Poisonies, keep drinking, keep talking about poison, and remember, your loved ones are trying to kill you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.